0: Our uh, first sermon reading today comes from Joshua. We're continuing our study of the book of Joshua. And uh, have a couple of long passages, so bear with me here. Joshua chapter 9. As soon as all the kings who were beyond the Jordan in the hill country and, the, and in the lowland all along the coast of the great sea toward Lebanon, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites heard of this. They gathered together as one to fight against Joshua and Israel. But the men of Israel said to the Hivites, Perhaps you live among us, then how can we make a covenant with you? They said to Joshua, We are your servants. And Joshua said to them, Who are you? Where do you come from? They said to him, From a very distant country your servants have come, because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him, and all that he did in Egypt, and all that he did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon the king of Heshbon, and to Og king of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. So our elders and all the inhabitants of our country said to us, Take provisions in your hand for the journey, and go to meet them, and say to them, We are your servants. Come now, make a covenant with us. Here is our bread. It was still warm when we took it from our houses as our food for the journey on the day we came to meet you. But now behold, it's dry and crumbly. These wineskins were new when we filled them, and behold, they have burst. And these garments and sandals of ours are worn out from the very long journey. So the men took some of their provisions, but did not ask counsel from the Lord and God made, and the, and Joshua made peace with them and made a covenant with them to let them live and the leaders of the congregation swore to them. And the end of the three days after they had made a covenant with them, they heard that they were na- their neighbors and that they lived among them. And the people of Israel set out and reached their cities on the third day. Now their cities were Gibeon, Chepararah, Beroth, and kiriath Jeriam. But the people of Israel did not attack them, because the leaders of the congregation had sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. Then all the congregation murmured against their leaders. But all the leaders said to the congregation, We have sworn to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we may not touch them, that we will do to them. Let them live. Let wrath be upon us because of the oath we swore to them. And the leaders said to them, Let them live. So they became cutters of wood and drawers of water. For all the congregation, just as the leaders had said to them. Joshua summoned them, and he said to them, Why did you deceive us, saying we are very far from you when you dwell among us? Now therefore you are cursed, and some of you shall never be anything but servants, cutters of wood and drawers of waters, for the house of my God. They answered Joshua, because it was told to your servants very certainty that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land and destroy all the inhabitants of the land from before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you and did this thing. And now behold, we are in your hand. Whatever seems good and right in your sight to do to us, do it. So he did this to them and delivered them out of the hand of the people of Israel. And they did not kill them. But Joshua made them that day cutters of wood and drawers of water for the congregation and for the altar of the Lord, to this day, in this place that he should choose. Our New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem, to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent out of their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them, and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days the God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing a yoke on the neck of of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as you will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon is related how God first visited the Gentiles, to take from them a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will re- return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord God, who made these things known from that of old. Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and that which has been strangled and from blood. So we are continuing our study of Joshua and we've been paying special attentions to issues of identity. How do we define who is us and who is them? And these questions occupy all our minds at this particular part. We seem to be a country that's increasingly divided into ideologically groups, each with their own particular symbols, their own boundary markers and their own set of beliefs. And how do we as the church function among these groups? Do we, with our distinctive beliefs and controlling stories, carve out our own space and fight for our own territory in this landscape? Or do we attempt to transcend these divisions but of course risk losing the distinctive characteristics of who we are and what makes us special. Do we try to find a middle way? Uh, Choosing to abandon some markers that are unhelpful and recenter on characteristics that are essential. However, which markers are unnecessary and which are essentials? These are hard questions and they're stuff that we all struggle with and they require wisdom more than black and white dogmatism. So the reason we are studying the book of Joshua is because here the Israelites deal with these same issues. They are people with a particular family heritage. They have a particular religion, which is strange in the world of the ancient Near East because it's exclusive. Their exclusive devotion to their their ethnicity as Israelites, their exclusive worship of Yahweh, and their particular story as slaves uh, rescued from Egypt led them to view others outside the group as something different. Now, as they encounter these people, the Canaanites, we would expect that this story of the Israelite conquest would be relatively straightforward. The Israelites are the good guys, and the Canaanites are bad. It's the job of the Israelites then to wipe out the Canaanites and take over their land. And I would imagine that that was exactly the way this story was told if you were an Israelite growing up. Uh, that you would hear these tales uh, told round the campfire of the great exploits of Joshua and those legendary Israelites of old who cleared the land of the Canaanites and allowed you and your family to live in the great land today. We are not that much different in our telling of history. We too prefer our history in a neat, simple manner uh, with ourselves, of course, as the good guys. You know, the outgunned and outnumbered but plucky band of colonists suffering under the tyranny of the evil British who nevertheless took up arms to fight for a new vision of the world in which democracy would ensure liberty and justice for all. And against all odds, we succeeded. With determination, we expanded throughout the continent and brought civilization, law, and democracy to the West. As free people, with our creative power and our tenacity, and our industry, we uh, we established uh, uh, industrialism and uh, secure, uh, and became an industrial powerhouse who would save the world from Nazism and communism. Of course, I have left out uh, the whole issue of slavery, the extermination and removal of the Native Americans, the mistreatment of immigrants like the Irish, Italians, Chinese, Japanese. I've left out Jim Crow and all sorts of other failings. The point is that our history is a more complicated story. And it challenges those simple black and white ideas of good guys and bad guys, of us and them. And it's why there's such a debate right now about uh, how history should be taught. In schools, because we prefer one of these stories to the other. Now, as we have seen in the book of Joshua, uh, rather than the relatively straightforward account of the conquest of Canaan that it appears to be on the surface, and even today is often understood as, it's actually a deeply subversive to this simple story. At almost every corner, Joshua is challenging the issues of us versus them. Boundaries that seem insurmountable, like the Jordan River and the walls of Jericho are broken down. For Joshua, it seems that drawing sharp lines of divisions is not so easy to do. And so our passage today comes right after there's been a fresh start for the Israelites. They've renewed their covenant with Yahweh, complete with the construction of a new altar and sacrifices and rituals. And once again, they face opposition from a group of kings from the lowlands of Canaan. Just as Israel had been united together by their renewal of their covenant, these disparate groups like the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Hittites have united together in their opposition to the Israelites. However, not every Canaanite group thinks that battling the Israelites is such a good idea. What we are told in this passage is that there was a group called the Gibeonites, who were a group that were from four cities located just south of Ai and just north of Jerusalem. And they wisely thought that they were better off making friends with the people who had just miraculously crossed the Jordan River and defeated the great walled city of Jericho. They are aware, though, that the Israelites would not want to make a deal with them if they knew they were from Canaan. And so they come up with a clever plan. The Gibeonites dress like wilderness-wandering nomads, which is exactly what the Israelites had been for the past 40 years. Like the Israelites, they negotiate with, as a group and are led by elders rather than a king. Like the Israelites, they know the actions and power of, of God, of Yahweh. However, all these similarities also highlight the differences. If you notice in verse 12, it tells us that their bread was dry and crumbly, their wineskins had burst, and their garments and sandals are worn out. And this is significant because all of this language is very similar to a passage in Deuteronomy 29. Remember, I've talked about Joshua relies heavily on Deuteronomy. And in this passage in Deuteronomy, God explains to the Israelites that he had cared for his people in the wilderness and ensured that their clothes and sandals did not wear out and that they were fed fresh food rather than bread and wine. Also, while the Gibeonites had heard, for the, great, uh, had heard the great deeds of Yahweh, like the defeat of Sihon and Og, the Israelites had actually seen these acts. In other words, the Gibeonites in some ways look exactly like the Israelites. But there's one thing they lack. They lack the provision, the protection, and the full experience of knowing who Yahweh is. Uh, And that's exactly why the Gibeonites here want to make a covenant with Israel. And why they would resort to trickery to do so. Their ruse is successful. And it's so successful that it causes Joshua to make a covenant with them. However, the Israelites soon discovered that the Gibeonites were not from the distant land they claimed to be from, but right down the road. And that made the Gibeonites Canaanites. And that led to a major dilemma because the Israelites had been forbidden to make any covenant with any of the Canaanites. And instead they were ordered to rid the land of them. But as we know from covenants, Covenants are serious business in the ancient Near East. And covenants were not to be violated without serious consequences. So that's the dilemma that's presented in this book. What When the Israelites discover the deception, they are uh, divided about what to do. The leaders don't want to attack the covenants because they believe they needed to uphold the sanctity of the covenant. The people disagreed. And in verse 18, the text says that the people murmured. Now that word murmured, or maybe it's grumbled in your translation, is a word that had been used throughout the book of Exodus. Uh, You know, when the people uh, would complain about how they didn't have fresh meat or water in the desert, or when they wanted those good leeks back in Egypt, they would murmur. And so, by using this word here, the book of Joshua is signaling that it is the people who are in the wrong because they are emulating the behavior of the unbelieving generation of their parents. So, Joshua decides to uphold this covenant that he had made with the Gibeonites. He's still not happy that the Gibeonites had tricked him. In verse 11, the Gibeonites had asked for a covenant and said, We are your servants. So Joshua responds uh, after he learns of this trickery by condemning them to servitude. He pronounces a curse on them that they will cut wood and uh, carry water. However, uh, right after doing so, and and I mean, all of this is like totally weird and foreign from experience. And I I promise I'm going to bring it back to us to make this applicable. There's a a real irony here that's really easy to miss. You can skip through this if you're reading this story. And like I said, getting lost in all these details about curses and servitude and covenants. The whole point here is that the Gibeonites, because they're Canaanites, were meant to be excluded. And Joshua even tries to do that by making them servants. But notice what he says. They are made servants for... The verse tells us, the house of God. Isn't that interesting? The Gibeonites are now affiliated with the priest and the worship of Yahweh, which is the very center of Israelite society. Far from being diminished and excluded, the Gibeonites are basically fully assimilated, assimilated and they become part of the very heart of Israelite life. In their response to Joshua's curse, the, the, the Gibeonites even embraced their status. In verse 24, they called themselves servants. And then they note that Moses was God's servant. And the interesting thing about this situation, about how the Gibeonites have been cursed, but actually end up being in a way blessed, uh, is an, has an interesting parallel to another story in the Torah. It's a weird story, it's in the book of Numbers, and it's actually one of my favorites, it's pretty cool, but unfortunately it takes up like three chapters, and we've already read too much, but I'll sum up the story. Back when the Israelites were still wandering around in the wilderness, there was a king from, a, from an enemy uh, land called King Balak, he was uh, the king of, uh, the Mo- of Moab, and he decided he needed to do something about these Israelites. So what he did was he hired a prophet, a miracle worker named Balaam. And his point was, uh, Balaam was to curse the Israelites. He was kind of like a magical, spiritual hitman. But the problem was that every time Balaam tries to curse the Israelites, not only were his curses ineffective, but he ends up blessing them. It's really uh, quite a comic tale. And at one point, there's even a talking uh, donkey, but that's another story. But it seems to me that by including this detail where the Gibeonites are cursed, but it actually becomes a blessing, the book of Joshua wants us to see that the Gibeonites are similar to Israel despite being Canaanites. And so once again, what we have is Joshua kind of subtly but subversively blurring these distinctions that we would imagine were black and white. But the really interesting thing is, as we listen to this story, it should remind us of another story in Joshua. What, What story does this remind us of? Anybody who's been paying attention to the sermons, someone who looks like they're excluded but ends up being included... Yeah, Olivia? No, you're not raising your hand. Okay. Oh, you are? It's Rahab, that's right. Olivia for the win. You get a thousand resurrection church points. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it should remind us of the story of Rahab. Both stories, in fact, there's lots of really cool uh, textual parallels here. Both stories occur before a major battle. The story of Rahab occurs before the battle of Jericho. And here the story of the Gibbonites occurs before the battle of the five southern kings. Both stories involve deception. Rahab deceives the king of Jericho by leading his soldiers in the wrong direction. And here the Gibbonites deceive the Israelites by appearing as nomads. Now what's cool about this is this is actually a really common Hebrew literary technique. When you tell two really similar stories. And the point of doing this is for the person uh, who's hearing this to think about the stories in light of one another. You're supposed to relate them. And where you see similarities, those are intended to emphasize a particular point. When you hear differences, they're uh, supposed to highlight an important idea. Uh, So this is like a really common thing that we see over and over again in the Hebrew Bible. Now... Just to give you an example, there's a small example here. Uh, in verse fourteen, it says that the Gibeonite deception was discovered after three days. Now, why tell us three days? Like it's not really important to the story. Well, it's because it wants us to link this story uh, because um, we have we're, we're told earlier in the book of Joshua in chapter three that it was three days. It was after three days that the Israelites cross the Jordan River into Canaan. So it's kind of like a little like hyperlink, okay? It wants us to hyperlink back to chapter 3. Um, and the reason the three days links the stories is because uh, what they have in common is that in chapter 3, the Israelites crossed the Jordan River into Canaan. And now what we have is an ironic reversal because we have the Canaanites these Gibeonites, the Canaanite people crossing into Israel okay now if we look at the similarities between the story of Rahab and Gibeonites we see that when faced with this dilemma, both of them have this dilemma you you exclude the outsider Rahab or the Gibeonites because of God's commandment or do you include the outsider because of your duty to honor the covenant In both cases, uh, inclusion, because of duty to the covenant, is the higher good. In addition, both Rahab and the Gibeonites actually confess their loyalty to Yahweh. And they desire to be uh, part of the covenant. They desire to be part of the covenant so much that uh, they actually um, uh, strong-arm a covenant out of the Israelites. Both stories demonstrate that the Canaanites can exhibit... The favorable traits of the Israelites, even if their methods are somewhat suspect. But then again, the history of the Israelites is also filled with trickery. See, for example, Jacob, who is renamed Israel. And why is he renamed Israel? Because he struggles with God himself in order to demand a blessing. Who does that sound like? It sounds like Rahab and the Gibeonites. And so, yes, uh your friend from school okay now the difference is that in rahab it was the israelite spies who made the covenant and they did so under pretty desperate circumstances but here the leaders make the covenant uh, it's the leaders who make the covenant not some random spies and they are duped in other words the covenant made by the spies is not really representative of israel in addition Uh, the precarious situation of the spies kind of makes it forgivable that they might cut a deal from the enemy. I mean, they were in pretty tough circumstance. Uh, And this may be why the conflict with the law of Deuteronomy is never pointed out explicitly in the Rahab story. Uh, Also, the consequences are minimal. Uh, If you include Rahab, you're just talking about like one family. Now, the Gibeonites story... The covenant is actually made officially by Joshua and the leaders. There is trickery, but there's no indication that the Israelites felt threatened by the Gibeonites. The conflict between the requirements of the law and the covenant with the Gibeonites is explicitly pointed out. Most significantly, the consequences of upholding the covenant are enormous here. Rather than a woman and her family... We have a whole population of people that lived in four cities that is being incorporated into the Israelites. So you can see that the similarities of these two stories actually highlight the big point that the book of Joshua is trying to make. Who is included? And who is us? And what we have is, is not a retreat. We actually have an expansion of this idea. The idea of who is an Israelite has become bigger. It's not just a woman and her family. It's a whole tribe of people. A whole tribe of people who are now servants in the most central part of Israelite society. And that leads to a bigger question. What makes Rahab and the Gibeonites different from the other Canaanites? Why are they included and the other Canaanites not? And the answer is pretty clear. It's their confession of Yahweh as Lord. Both believe that Yahweh is at work. And both believe that Yahweh will prevail. They both believe this so much that they are willing by any means necessary to force a covenant with the Israelites. So much so that they break from their entire surrounding culture and declare allegiance to this foreign God. In other words, both are saved by faith. Now, The interesting question is, how do they know about Yahweh? How do they know that? Both Rahab and the Gibeonites actually basically quote sections of the Torah. It's really interesting. Furthermore, how do they know and believe with such certainty that they would risk so much so that they could be included? The book of Joshua actually never explicitly tells us. However, I think the issue is just too important to be ignored. And I think the answer we are not told is that it's on purpose. It's not given to us because we're meant to ask that question. And I think that once we ask that question, the answer can only be one thing. And that answer is that God was at work in the people of Canaan. What else can it be? And I think that is what the Israelites recognize. And I think that's why they upheld the covenant, despite the fact that the one was agreed to under duress and one was agreed to as a result of clear deception. I mean, there's kind of an out here. I mean, if you tried to argue these, like, as contracts in a court of law, I I don't know that they would stand up. But the Israelites upheld them. And I think the reason why must be because they saw that God was at work here. And that's where I think that this story may have relevance to us in the church today. As we consider these issues of identity and who is us and who is them. Because this is not the last time that people of God have faced such a dilemma. And that is where our passage from Acts comes into play today. So this passage that we read from Acts is a summary of what is known as the Council of Jerusalem. Uh, which uh, meets to address the first big issue that was dividing the early church. The issue is this. Christianity was a movement within Judaism. And Christianity had opened the door to including the non-Jewish people who we call Gentiles. Already in Acts, we have the story of an Ethiopian eunuch and a Roman centurion joining the church. And the question became to the early church. If Gentiles were admitted, if they were considered us, if they were included, under what circumstances could they be admitted? And the problem was that your typical Gentile was not circumcised. And for many, circumcision was an important part of being Jewish, and therefore an important part of being God's people. After all, God had made a covenant with Abraham. And he had given circumcision as an eternal sign. However, there were others that believed that the Gentiles could be included now that the gospel had expanded beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. And circumcision was quite a high barrier to entry and unnecessary. Now for us, it's weird that circumcision of all things would become such a big issue. The problem was that circumcision was a key defining marker of identity among these people. All the bad guys, like the Greeks and the Romans, were uncircumcised. And they kept trying to impose their values on the Jews, including ending the practice of circumcision. They thought it was barbaric. To the Jews at the time, then, circumcision was like a proud form of resistance. It was a visible mark that they were the good guys. They were on the right side. Because it made the, it was a sign that they were God's people. In fact, in the last few hundred years before the Council of Jerusalem, Jews had died upholding the practice of circumcision. So you can see why some might not be so quick to drop this as a defining issue. Now, for our purposes, what we have here in Acts is an issue of identity. We have the question of who is us and who is them. We have a dilemma here. Where the Torah commands one thing, but practicality demands another. One side wants to exclude, while the other side wants to include. Now we know how the story ends. The story ends with the requirement of circumcision of Gentiles being dropped. The decision to made so, is made so uh, right here at the Council of Jerusalem. But what interests me the most is how this issue is decided. How is this dilemma resolved? Why is this dilemma resolved in the way it is? And what, what I th- where, I think the, where I think this has uh, importance for us is because in the book of Joshua and the Council of Jerusalem, the decision is for inclusion. And I think the principle that decides for inclusion is the same. And so if that is so, then it becomes an important principle for us in the church as we live out our distinctive beliefs in this world, and work out what it means to be us and them. Now, how might we uh, imagine that this issue would be decided? I think that if it were us, we would decide it based on like scriptural arguments, okay? This would be a great biblical debate, which both sides uh, would take their stances using proof text. And in fact, that does happen. If you look at verse uh, 6 and 7, it says that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and there was much debate. However, like most theological debates, this goes nowhere. So, what does resolve this issue? Well, Peter tells the assembly a story. He tells them a story about how he was moved by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the gospel to Cornelius the Roman centurion. He saw the Holy Spirit at work in Cornelius' house. Therefore, Peter must conclude that Cornelius is no longer them, but us. Cornelius is included and not excluded. Just like Rahab and just like the Gibeonites, it is apparent Cornelius knows God and confesses God, and desires to be a part of that community, and pledges his allegiance to God. After witnessing this, Peter concludes his argument with these words, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. Now if you look at verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul, as they related what signs and wonders had done through them among the Gentiles. This is the turning point of the Council of Jerusalem. And it's what leads James, the leader of the church at this time, to issue the ruling dropping the requirement for circumcision. And notice that it is only at this point that we have presented to us a scriptural proof text. James quotes from Amos. But the passage tells us that by that point, the issue had been decided. What was persuasive was not some detailed scriptural argument, but the experience of God at work. Actual people, an actual experience, not academic, abstract, theological argument, was the most persuasive evidence. It was the story that made the difference. So what does that mean for us in the church? First, I think we need to embrace the idea that God is seeking to expand his kingdom. God desires inclusion and not exclusion. There is a progression in Joshua from Rahab and her family to the whole tribe of the Gibeonites. And that is despite the fact of the huge barriers to entry. It is totally contrary to what we would uh, expect as we begin the book of Joshua. And we've highlighted its importance to the hearers of this work. There is a progression in the book of Acts as well. We see the Holy Spirit break out first in the Jews of the Diaspora at Pentecost. Then to the Ethiopian eunuch. Then to the Roman centurion Cornelius. And then it spreads to the point where Paul is preaching the gospel in Rome at the heart of empire itself. Second, God is a God who breaks boundaries. God opens up the Jordan. He knocks down the walls of Jericho. He raises up a mixed multitude to escape from Egypt. He saves the Canaanites and includes the Gentiles. As James rightfully notes as he quote Amos, that has been the plan all along. Our tendency then should always be first of all to look to how we can include rather than to erect barriers to exclude. Third, Ultimately, the guiding principle for us as a people is to see where God is at work. How do we know that? The same way the Israelites did, in the same way that Paul and Barnabas and Peter knew it, by, by people knowing, confessing, and believing God. If we experience that, if we see the signs and wonders among them, then we have no other choice, I think. Our highest duty is to the kingdom. And that means including all of those who wish to pledge allegiance to the kingdom. All power and authority is given to Jesus our Lord. He reigns in heaven. Christ is king. Let us be confident of this. And know that he is at work breaking down the barriers until the glory of the God should cover the earth as the waters cover the seas.